So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 246. I'm Douglas Wilson, and you are not. <laughs> You've come along to listen, and I appreciate it. Welcome. So 246, here we are. I recently received a question that has been raised before, and I think this is a very important question as we're discussing things like Christian nationalism and theocracy and theonomy and the intersection between God's revelation in his word and what our laws ought to be. And the question that was posed to me, and this comes up almost right away whenever we're talking about conforming our society to biblical law, this question will arise. Do you think that the government ought to enforce the first table of the law? Okay, the you shall have no other gods before me, not make a graven image, uh, not take the name of the Lord God in vain, and the Sabbath. Uh, that's the first table of the law. Now, if someone said, do you think, let's say someone made you, well, here's my standard joke. Uh, if I were president, and what a glorious three days that would be. <laughs> uh, so if, let's say I had the uh, discretion and the power and the authority to say what kind of government we were going to have. And someone came up to me and said, uh, Wilson, are you going to enforce the first table of the law? Okay. My response to that would be, I believe that we should make a decision. In fact, I have made this decision as the chief poobah, which I, I am right now. I've made the decision that the government is going to obey the first table of the law. Okay. Obey the first table of the law, not enforce the first table of the law. Now, enforcement has to come at some point, but I think obedience has to come first. And given the given this the statist assumptions and the the predilection that people have toward governmental idolatries, I think the government should work on obeying the first table of the law for two three hundred years. When the government has obeyed the first table of the law, then we can begin discussion on what what we're going to do with that citizen guy over there who has got a statue of Buddha on his mantelpiece in his house and he prays to it. What do we do with that guy? Well, someone's going to say, well, d doesn't the law require, you know, da, da, da. But here's, this is the difficulty. The greatest violations of the first table of the law have always historically been governmental violations of the first table of the law. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who set up the golden statue, and Nebuchadnezzar is the one who said everybody's got to bow down to this thing. Darius is the one who was tricked into signing the edict that nobody could pray to the true God. Jesus was railroaded in a blasphemous trial in the middle, blasphemous and illegal trial in the middle of the night. And it was all done, it was all blasphemously and idolatrously done by the rulers, by the rulers, the, the chief rulers of Judaism. So consequently, if we said, who is the biggest, who is the most likely culprit? when it comes to issues of the first table of the law, the state, the government. So let, let's tell you what, the state should want, the state should want its citizenry 
to be obedient to the first table of the law. And the most effective way for the state to bring that about is by setting an example. Okay? So, Sabbath requirements, every, every governmental agency, police and military accepted, and even they are on a skeleton crew, shut down on the uh, Lord's Day. Government offices are closed for business uh, that on, the, on the Lord's Day. They obey the fourth commandment. They don't set in motion idolatrous systems of adoration and worship of the dear leader. Okay? They, don't, they don't develop cults of personality. Whether it's Kim Jong Kim Jong Il, or Vladimir Putin, or Obama, or you, you don't you don't go in for high profile cults of personality. Why? Well, because the government is intent on obeying the first table of the law. So, I I think that this is not this is not a, a concession to human weakness. I think it's a principled stand. Jesus says, do you want to take the speck out of somebody's eye? Get the beam out of your own. Before the government, before the state attempts to take the speck of Buddhist wind chimes off of somebody's front porch because it's a violation of the first table of the law, the government should first get the beam out of its own eye. And who's more likely to identify himself or itself with the supreme being? Governmental authorities? Or some sinner in the back, in the back part of town. Always will be God. All right. So continuing with the podcast, episode two forty six, as we continue to study hermartiology, we come to a word that is not sinful in itself, but given the context that Scripture uses it in, it always refers to the sin of showing contempt. The word is emptuo, e m p t u o. Emptuo, which means to spit or spit upon. Everywhere that Scripture uses this word, it is talking about the contempt shown to Christ in the course of his passion. First, Jesus predicted that it would happen. He predicts this for uh, he predicts it in Luke, for example, in Luke eighteen verse thirty-two. Uh, Jesus says, "For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on." Right, so Jesus says in Luke, he's going to Jerusalem and this is going to happen. And then in Mark, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Mark 10, 34. Now in Mark, this prediction was fulfilled four and five chapters later. It's fulfilled in Mark 14 and again in Mark 15. Mark 14, 65 and some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. And then in Mark fifteen nineteen, And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. So, when Jesus came into their, came under their control, when they had him under arrest, they, uh, they could not contain their bile, and it all overflowed. Their hot hatred overflowed. And so they abused him and struck him and beat him and spat on him. So this is obviously when you're at the dentist and he tells you to wash out your mouth with fluoride, and then he says, here, spit this out. You're not sinning if you, sp- 
you're you're not sinning if you spit something out of your mouth. You're not sinning if you spit. But if you spit in this way, showing contempt, well, it, it is a grievous sin. Matthew records the same shameful treatment. Matthew 26, 67, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. And then Matthew 27, 30, And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. God don't never change He's God So, for the uh, book review today, what I want to do is review a book called Sheltering Mercy by Smith and Wilt. Two authors on this one. And what it is, is a um, rendering of about half the Psalms, I think, into uh, more contemporary poetry. Now, the poetry is updated, Christianized. It's not, it's, it's sort of like Isaac Watson Beyond, but it's not classic poetic forms. It's not rhymed couplets, for example. It's um, more contemporary forms of poetry. But um, the, uh, this is, um, well, you can take or leave this. Uh, I, the thing I really appreciated about this book is was located in one of the reasons I read poetry. I, the, one of the big blessings of poetry for me is the pleasure I get from juxtapositions, small word groupings of two or three words together. So, obviously, if you're reading an epic poem, you want, the, you want to take in the whole. Or if you're reading a lyric po- uh, poem, uh, you want to make sense of it, at least if it's the kind of lyric poem that is intended to make sense. But whether or not it makes sense to you, um, there are, I can take great, great pleasure in reading something like, um, well, an example, if I read uh, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, I can read for, through the four quartets and not know what the heck is going on. <laughs> okay. I'm, but I'm not reading it for a plot line. I'm not reading it for this story. Well, why am I reading it? Well, because there are some glorious phrases in there. And that, those little groupings of words are like I mean, just sweet morsels. Now, this book, Sheltering Mercy, there is also some roughage in, in there. Uh, more, I don't want, a cliche is too harsh, but more commonplace expressions, expressions that you've run across in any number of places. But there's a strikingly high volume in this, in this book, there's a strikingly high volume of these juxtaposed words that just, it's like a little burst of flavor. It's just really well done. And uh, so Sheltering Mercy by uh, Smith and uh, wilt. And uh, it looks like they want to um, uh, do, uh, you know, they, they may fi- finish out the Psalter and do the rest of the Psalter. So basically, you might say Psalm 50, the poem that they have there is loosely inspired by Psalm 50. And they run through the basic material, but they're, they're, just, they're just good at um, some of those, they're just good at some of those flavors. Mm-hmm.